this is Bruce Friedman of Adult Site Broker, and welcome to Adult Site Broker Talk, where each week we interview one of the movers and shakers of the adult industry, and we give you a tip on buying and selling websites. This week we'll be speaking with Kevin Stoltz of Eroticism Magazine. You probably noticed our new podcast site at adultsitebrokertalk.com. It has a more modern look with easier navigation and more information on our guests, including their social media links. You'll find all that at adultsitebrokertalk.com. Plus, we've doubled our affiliate payouts on ASB Cash. Now, when you refer sellers or buyers to us at Adult Site Broker, you're going to receive 20% of our broker commission on any and all sales that result from that referral for life. You can either place a link to us on your site or refer buyers and sellers through an email introduction. Check out asbcash.com for more details and to sign up. We've also added an events section on our website at adultsitebroker.com. Now you can get information on B2B events on our website, as well as special discounts reserved for our clients. Go to adultsitebroker.com for more details. Now let's feature our property of the week that's for sale at Adult Site Broker. We're proud to offer for sale an innovative marketing agency that specializes in managing the top 0.01% OnlyFans profiles in the world. It's just under a year old, but is growing very rapidly. They fully manage the workflow from promotion to monetization. They've developed an internal CRM software that empowers the sales management, marketing, automation, and analytics on the platform. This is one of the most relevant competitive advantages of the agency that enables it to consistently drive in-target traffic to profiles and efficiently monetize them. The company is already doing over 2 million euros in annual revenue from just over 20 OnlyFans accounts. They have a database of over 1 million contacts and 600,000 unique user accounts. This is an outstanding opportunity for someone to enter the world of OnlyFans management and immediately become one of the top agencies in the world, along with its software, processes, and know-how, which will allow you to bring models to three times their initial gross monthly revenue. Or, established agencies can acquire the company and expand their business. Only 2.59 million euros. Now time for this week's interview. My guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk is Kevin Stoltz. Kevin, thanks for being with us today on Adult Site Broker Talk. Hey, my pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Since losing his virginity at the age of 16, Kevin has been addicted to beautiful women. Where have I heard that before? His passion <laughs> since he was a young man was photography and film, and of course, pussy. His grandfather left him a camera, and he carried that camera everywhere. During the summers, he worked in the school's AV department repairing and cleaning equipment. He sold his first photos when he was 17. In his senior year, his final exam was to write, produce, and film an anti-drug commercial. That was his first official film, while his goal at that point was to be a war correspondent. But since Vietnam came to an end, that took care of that. He got a scholarship to the Center for Media Studies in New York and studied film. He soon had opened a studio and was living in Manhattan on West 30th Street called Studio 34. He had been interested in nude photography since he was a boy, so he befriended the working girls in his neighborhood. In the mid-80s, he had the opportunity to do some shooting in Brazil. From there, he went down to Sao Paulo to soak up some of the nightlife and enjoy the sexy Brazilian girls. Kevin has been a professional photographer now for 42 years. Early on, he did some work for Rolling Stone. The editor referred him to model agencies and an ad agency. He did shoots for models, travel and leisure magazine, and other magazines. He later started getting contacted by companies to do their websites and by hosting on his servers. He began working at Adult in the year 2000 when Chili Willies, a men's strip club, contacted him. I remember that place to remodel their <laughs> website. He photographed the girls dancing and shot short video clips for the site that led him to meeting many girls who not only stripped but also worked as escorts. Escorts from around Latin America came to him for shoots to publish on various websites popping up on the Internet. 
Eventually, he decided to open an online magazine, Erotico Mexico, and it was number one in Google. 90% were escorts, other were wives, swingers, and aspiring porn stars from Latin America and even Eastern Europe. He added Eroticism magazine in 2010. In 2019, around his birthday, he had a stroke, and then Christmas Eve, a heart attack. In the 2020, the pandemic in Mexico hit hard. He returned to the States last year. In the beginning, it was a one-man show. Last year, he had writer and photographer Michael McGrady join him, as well as one more person. He recently launched a new non-explicit publication called Eroticu Magazine. He also has a podcast, Eroticism Podcast, hosted by Kevin, the erotic photographer. That would be you. He's appeared in a documentary for Netflix on sex trafficking in Latin America. He's been featured in Esquire Magazine, GQ, and Vice Magazines about his work on the magazine and working with sex workers in a time of turmoil over prostitution and sex trafficking in Latin America. You can follow him on Twitter at Eroticism Girls. I, you know, we've, we've see, all seen those beer commercials about the most interesting man in the world, Kevin. I think I'm going to give you that title. <laughs> I think that's what Alejandro DeNono said. He goes, the job that everybody wants. <laughs> the most interesting man in the world. Okay, so Kevin, what's changed at Eroticism Magazine since you founded it in 2010? Well, as, as you mentioned, I started the magazine as a Latin American publication. Um, like many magazines do, Esquire has a Latin American version, uh, GQ, Playboy. Everybody has a, a version in the different countries. So we, my concept was to offer a place for my girls that I personally photograph to be able to, you know, get some publicity, get some recognition and stuff. And then later that kind of evolved. And I discovered that our market was primarily from English or non-Spanish speaking countries. We had a lot of European visitors. We had a lot of U.S. and Canadian visitors. So that was when I had to make the decision to cross it over from, you know, from Latin America to an American or English version of magazine, which is how eroticism was born. Very cool. It's been quite a ride for you health and situation-wise in the last four years. You had a stroke, a heart attack, and moved back to the States from Mexico in that time. Talk about that journey, and how are you doing now? Well, the journey was probably, I should have done it much earlier than I did. In 2016, because of the issues we were having with uh escorts and uh, sex trafficking and everything. The laws became stricter, not only in Mexico, but in other Latin American countries. So what ended up happening was that a lot of the websites that were featuring these models, they became, I do not advertise here because of violence against the girls and things like that. So business started to fall off in 2016, which was when I was featured in Esquire and GQ several months apart. And of course, my vanilla clients were of that upper echelon that read GQ and Esquire magazine. So I lost a lot of my vanilla work. I lost a lot of my wedding business at that point. So I was just like, okay, so this is, you know, this is time to get out of there. But I had a girlfriend and I was like, okay, so now I'm not going to, not going to leave you now. But uh, mm -hmm. she eventually left me and then uh, oh, things evolved and uh, I got a new girlfriend and she couldn't leave Mexico because she was a Venezuelan Czech girl. And uh, she was actually a victim of sex trafficking from Venezuela to Mexico. Really? And, yeah, that's how that, that's how we met. She came as, for an interview for the to appear in the magazine to do a casting. And uh, she was telling me her story. And I was just I was just amazed, you know. And eventually she came back and she said, you know, hey, can I live with you here? Because I had a big place and I had an uh, enormous place. I had 480 square meters of studio and apartment. And, and in in New Mexico for $15 a day, you get your maid service and everything else. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was easy living, something that she hadn't seen before. And, I, you know, she was pretty. And I was like, sure, yeah, you can come and live here. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that sort of evolved, and we were together until the pandemic uh, sort of started coming to an end, and 
she decided to move, try to move back with her family. So she was getting her Venezuelan papers back in order and trying to get out of Mexico to Venezuela because she was turned down to come with me to the States. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, she got turned down for her visa. But the girl who left me in 2016, she was uh, she had her visa. You know, we got a visa because we had been living together for 10 years. So we were considered a, a married couple in Mexico. I guess it's like, uh, what do they call them here? Common law marriages in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. And because, you know, if you live together for more than seven years, you're a, you're a married couple. So she got, she had no problem getting the, getting the visa. We had bank statements, credit card stuff and everything to back it all up. And uh, she got her visa on her first appointment. But unfortunately, Sabrina wasn't so lucky because she had, uh, she had a Venezuelan nationality and she has to renew her Venezuelan passport. And then after she did that, I was already on my way you know, to getting back to the U.S. But yes, they, they, once she got it, they turned her down because she had no, no source of income. She was living with a, a cousin or somebody in Mexico so, or with a girlfriend. I don't know. She was, you know, she was uh, bisexual. So she had a girlfriend and, uh, and living with me. Well, that's not a bad situation. No, not at all. <laughs> and you had to get back to the States because of your health, right? Well, I wanted to get back to the States even before I started having health problems. But yeah, once I had my stroke in 2019, I started looking for ways to get back. The, you know, at first it was just a stroke. And then as I was trying to recover from the stroke, you know, getting back into having being able to walk in a stable manner, then I had a heart attack in a Christmas Eve, actually, it was. Wonderful. Yeah. So, and it was what we call an atypical cardiac event because I had chest pain, but very mild. And the cases that I've seen of strokes and heart attacks are much, they're much more severe, crushing chest pain, difficulty breathing, pain down the left arm. I had none of that. And when I had my stroke, I waited three days to go to the doctor because I didn't think I had a stroke. But then one day my neighbor said, you know, what are you drunk at 730 in the morning? I was taking my dog out and she said I was walking like I was uh, already drunk or I've been drinking all night. So my friends that uh, that lived near me and that I worked with also in Mexico in a wedding planning business, they said, hey, I'm going to take you to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor. And I was talking funny. I was talking in reverse. I asked them one time to lend me the car to to lend my dog the car to take me to the store. Yeah, that's a that's a good indicator. <laughs> yeah, so I went to the uh, doctor, and uh, he did a test, and he said, "Yeah, you you had a stroke," and he sent me for a what do they call it? CAT scan, and the CAT scan just confirmed everything. So I was like, "Okay, yeah, here we go." The heart attack was the same thing. It was Christmas Eve. The symptoms were mild. You know, it was just like a bothersome pain in the upper left hand part of my chest near my shoulder. I thought maybe it was just a pulled muscle from from working out because I was exercising with small weights and stuff to you know get back into shape after the stroke, and uh, I didn't do anything about it. And then you know Christmas Day, otherwise going to the doctor wasn't an option, so waited till the day after that I could go, you know. And then I had a friend take me to the to the doctor, and he was like, "I got to send you to the hospital," which they did. I went to the hospital to be admitted, and. Uh, the hospital refused me because I didn't have the money for a down payment. Oh, lovely. Yeah, there's, I, there, I had no health insurance in Mexico anymore. I did have a private health insurance for a while, but it was like $400 a month. And when I needed it one time, it didn't cover anything. So I just said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother with this. So in 2022, I made arrangements to move to Corpus Christi in Texas. That was the original plan. I have, uh, elderly aunt and uncle that are still alive, but some of the last of my living relatives. I was going to move there with them and help them. My uncle had a quadruple bypass. My aunt broke her hip. So they were struggling with day-to-day stuff. And so my aunt said, come, you can help us out. You can have the car. You can get yourself a little part-time job and everything while you're waiting for social security. And then the day I was supposed to fly, she called me and she said, don't come. Yeah, I think that my uncle was going a little crazy and not to come. And, uh, you know, I didn't go. So then later on, I decided, well, I'm going to go anyway. 
the Netflix production that I did just before I left, they paid for my airline tickets. That was part of the deal that we had, you know, for me staying because I had my tickets in 2022 and then they asked me to stay and do this show. Particularly, it was on sex trafficking and on what happened with Katya, the model that I had that was killed by a serial killer, and the lack of the police to to do anything about it. So, you know, I stayed, I did the show, and, you know, as soon as I finished with the show, I was off to the races to get back to the U.S. They got me a ticket within a week, and I was gone. Talk about the experience of doing that Netflix special about sex trafficking and you talk about your model being killed that had to be a terrible experience yeah it it was bad for me in particular because it was a girl that i met years earlier in cancun when a pimp a fe- her female pimp was trying to you know get her photos brought her to cancun to be photographed by me and I went to meet him and when I saw the girl and I met the girl I was like no I'm not shooting her she didn't look like she was a willing participant and I felt that she was you know there because she was being forced to be there or circumstances were forcing her to be there that and f- shooting for escort agencies were just two things that I didn't do because escort agencies in Mexico were notorious for bringing girls from other countries. I mean, even from uh, Eastern Bloc Europe. So uh, yeah, I go out, they promise them something else. And then when they get there, they find out that they're going to be working in sex work. So yes. And I had experience with a couple of models who left agencies and, you know, tried to go independent. So I turned Katia down back in probably 2010, it was, or 2011, was while I still lived in Cancun. And then I turned her down and we never stayed in touch. I never saw her again. And then one day in Mexico City, I had a girl, you know, obviously using a different alias name, contacted me for an appointment to be shot for her portfolio photos. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Come. When I opened the door, it was her. But now, you know, this was like six years later. So she was older and she had been working the streets already you know, doing old style cell phone pictures and stuff like that before we came out with this, you know, with the good smartphone cameras and all that crap that kind of ruined photography for everybody. But, (laughs) but yeah, we hooked up that day and I I did a shoot for her, you know, nothing uh, explicit, just a simple, a simple shoot, maybe some titties out and stuff like that, but no, nothing explicit because that wasn't the, that wasn't the concept that I like to use. I didn't think you needed to give the cow away. So we shot and then, you know, she came back again and we shot again and we began, we started becoming friends and she was telling me her family story or family history and everything. And uh, it was quite interesting. Her father was a cartel enforcer and collector. Oh, God. And when she was a child, her father took her around to collect debts and to collect payments from the businesses near where they uh, lived. So, yeah, so it was an interesting story and all. And so Kathy and I became very close. I met her mother. I met her brother. And then, you know, one night I had a missed call at three o'clock in the morning. And actually, the day that she was killed, five minutes before she was killed, she talked to me on the phone. We talked, we talked on the phone and we were going to get together the next day. And uh, I never heard from her. I sent her a shitload of messages. I sent her uh, texts. I called her phone, but there was no response. And then on a Friday night, that was on a Wednesday. We were going to meet on a Thursday. And then Friday night into Saturday morning at three o'clock in the morning, my time, it, it, I got a phone call saying, saying I had a missed call because I, I always silence my phone at night for sleep. And uh, I woke up in the morning and I saw it was her mom. So I tried to call her mom back and I couldn't get through. And so finally, I just, uh, I gave up. And mom called me in the afternoon. She said she just came back from burying her daughter. And I was just like, I was in shock. Yeah. Yeah. Who killed her? Well, they have a video from the hotel and the police followed him on street cams for a while, but it was, um, 
somebody that they never identified supposedly and somebody that, you know, they never found. And then, you know, I was just outraged that there was no publicity about it on the internet. You know, there was no newspaper articles. There was nothing. So I did a Periscope, I think it was called back in the day. And I think it's now it's a part of Instagram or something. And I did a live broadcast where I completely lost it. And uh, it was actually threatened by the police to take the, the audio down because, you know, they, they felt that I was going to impede on their investigation. It's kind of hard to separate the Mexican police and the, the government officials from the cartels now, isn't it? it well, they're, they're all in the same. I mean, if you look at even from recent events and everything, you can see that the new communist government that took over Mexico back around 2000, I guess around 2018, 2019, they took over the presidency. And our Mexican president, he collaborates with China and uh, North Korea, as well as Cuba, Venezuela. They're all in this little group you know, of importing and exporting stuff. And uh, their theory is it's better to be in bed with the cartel than to fight them. Whereas before that, the presidents were in, at war literally with the cartels. They want to stay alive. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to imagine. And they want to get rich, let's face it. Exactly. The police in Mexico, they earn about maybe $80 every two weeks. You know, that's their pay. They work 24-hour days. And the military... You know, half of them are also in bed with the cartels and they have a system, you know, with the bribes where, you know, it all funnels up from the bottom up. This is sounding so much like Thailand. It's not even funny. I think it's all very typical of third world countries, to be honest with you. You know, recent, recently, well, last year, I guess it was, the U.S. had issued a warrant for the arrest of an extradition of El Chapo's son. You know, you're the famous El Chapo that the American finally got their hands on. So Mexican military, together with some state police or federal police, go to arrest him. And a war opened up. Literally, they, you know, the cartel came out with their 50 caliber machine guns porched on the back of pickup trucks. And they shot up businesses. They killed random people. The prison had to let out hundreds of prisoners that were rioting in the prison and they had video of them hitting the streets and you know taking cars from people that were passing by and it was just mayhem so the president released them the president ordered them released back to the family and uh, so the u.s didn't get him on the first bite but they did on the second bite oh did they yeah we, we just we just got him like a couple of weeks ago it started a war again, but this time uh, the U.S. was there with air transport. So as soon as he was in custody, he was out of Mexico. <laughs> they had no opportunity after that. Yeah, you don't mess with the U.S. military. <laughs> well, what happened was the DEA and the military and everybody came in to take control of the situation. That's what you want to do. So let's move on here. Like many young boys, you've been addicted to pussy since a very early age, haven't we all? But unlike most young men, they aren't able to make it their career, and it's been quite a ride. Discuss how you started an adult and where it's taken you. Well, I mean, I, I started an adult in New York, but not in the traditional sense. It started with having a studio in one of the worst areas of Manhattan in the 80s. I mean, we're talking about during the Mafia Wars time. So that's where my studio was located. There were drug dealings and prostitutes on the corner 24-7. On the corner, on the avenue, around the corner, everywhere in my neighborhood, there were girls. And I was always coming and going. And there were always models coming and going from my studio. So one of the girls, this black lady, China, she noticed all the activity. She's like, what goes on up there? Are you hiring prostitutes? <laughs> And I said, no, I'm a, I'm a photographer. So she was like, well, can I come upstairs and get warm? It was, you know, it was wintertime. And I said, yeah, sure, come up. I got caught. I always had coffee. Yeah, I was uh, addicted to coffee. It was my main addiction. <laughs> that and uh, bourbon. I like scotch, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I feel sorry for you. You shouldn't. Uh, I, I shouldn't, maybe, but I do. Although Johnny Walker Blue Label is absolutely the best scotch I've ever had. Eh, it's very good, but I tend to like the single malts myself. 
Oh, okay. I don't even know if I've had a single malt lately. I get them at weddings. When yeah. I used to go shoot weddings, the bride or the groom would invite me for a from their personal bar. That's when I would get the, the single malt, but I wouldn't invest in it. Imported single malt in Mexico was pretty expensive. But anyway, so I digress. You know, so it all started with China. China came up to the studio. Now you gotta imagine an old building, an old office or warehouse or whatever it was at one time on the corner of a CD street in Hell's Kitchen, or right on the border of what today is Hell's Kitchen and uh, the fashion district. And it was floor to ceiling windows. And it was probably maybe 1800 square feet, but all one room. The only thing that was offset from it was the little kitchenette and the what they called the laundry room, which I used as a dark room for my studio for my personal stuff, because I had personal street photography and stuff that I did. And so when China came up, she saw some wall hangings of the girls that I shot that I had blown up by the processing company. So she said, you, you know, would you shoot me? And I said, would you wear lingerie or take your clothes off? And she was like, yeah, I got no problem. And that's how it started. And it was all black and white, you know, because I didn't have a color processing darkroom. I only had sufficient for black and white. So that's how it started. And China kind of spread the word down on the street. Hey, go upstairs to warm up or, you know, in the wintertime, cool off in the summertime. And I, I had a constant flow of girls that wanted to get naked. That's never a bad thing, Kevin. No, and I had a constant <laughs> flow of girls that just wanted to have sex. Nice. Would that have been the 70s, late 70s or so? That would have been the early 80s. In 79, after I graduated, I had a brief period where I was looking for work and looking for a studio and stuff. I was living in my car for a brief period of time. And Melanie, the editor from Rolling Stone, the best she could get for me at the time was uh, per diem work because they had full-time staff photographers. So she would look for little jobs that they could pay me for. And I got myself into a boarding house. And from a boarding house, I got into the studio, which I was really looking for just a loft. But when I saw the size, I was like, holy crap. I could put a studio, I could put my, you know, myself in here. And I had a friend who was a carpenter and he built me, literally built me a rolling wall. You know, it was a wall on six wheels. It was painted different on each side. And uh, I used it to separate my living area from my studio. So it was, it worked out kind of nice that way. The bed was close enough. We could just fall onto it, but it was separated by the divider and which was nice. But yeah. It was convenient at the time. And at that time, it was only $2,000 a month. Can you imagine what it would cost now? <laughs> I have a friend in New York who's in real estate there. And uh, he said that that same building where I was living obviously was torn down. But a studio there now goes for $5,000. For a studio? For a studio. <laughs> one bedroom and two bedrooms, you can get up towards 10000 Of course. Of course. Yeah, not much. Yeah, they took away all of the you know beauty of the building. I mean, it was in a horrible area in this in the 70s and 80s, but once the mafia wars came to an end, New York became started to become a little bit more civil, so to speak. You didn't have families warring with each other. I did get a visit from one of the mafia enforcers one time, which was quite a surprise, telling me that I was interfering with his girls. <laughs> So, you know, we had a short conversation about how it was none of his business and I would photograph whoever I wanted anytime I wanted. I didn't know who it was. You know, the guy came, he was all dressed up real nice, you know, in his camel hair coat and everything. And so when he left, I went downstairs and I got the license plate of the car he was driving. Well, now he wasn't driving it, but he had his drivers driving it and his guys were standing outside. So I was like, okay, what the, what the hell? So I, I took the license plate down and I had a friend in the NYPD in the district attorney's office. And, and Frank, you know, said anytime I needed a favor to give him a call. So I called him up. I gave him the license plate. I told him what happened. He was like, don't worry about it. I'm sure it's probably just a wannabe. And I was like, okay. I said, I, I'm not worried. I said, I just wanted to let you know. So he called me back the next day and he said, guess what? He said, the chief of the organized crime task force wants to talk to you. At one PP. Yeah. So 
um, they picked me up and they took me over to one PP and, and they were like, look, we have some really bad news for you. This guy is an enforcer for, I forget what, what family it was. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> and so he, I was like, so what's my risk here? And he was like, well, he kills people. And I was like, okay, no problem. But yeah, it got scary for a while. Has anyone ever told you you should write a book? Yeah, many people. And I actually started writing one. And uh, Jim Steele was telling me, you know, he said, stay with the book. Don't go to short stories. Because I was going to write a series of short stories about my adventures with the different girls and how it all started and everything. Write a book. You really should. He said, don't don't do the short stories. I was going to do short stories and send, sell them to like penthouse letters and stuff like that. Mm -mm. Write a book. Yeah, he said, write, write the book. And, you know, I mean, what I really needed was an editor because right now my focus is so screwed up. You know, I couldn't sit down and write a book in, in the last four years. So, and I had a girl in Mexico that wanted to write it for me. But the problem is that she wanted to do it in Spanish and I wanted to do it to a bigger audience. I wanted to, you know, bring it to the American market. Well, you can do both. So. Well, yeah, I mean, one, but once you write it in English, you can have it translated to any language you want. Exactly. So you worked as a paramedic for what was it, four years, I think. And you said during that time you had the best sex of your life. Maybe give us some highlights. In other words, kiss and tell. Some of the best sex of my life. I paid my way through the balance of you know what uh, the scholarship didn't pay because it was only a partial scholarship. So the balance of what I needed, I got through working as a paramedic. I became an EMT when I was 14 years old and then started taking courses and I started taking more classes. I went to heavy rescue school. And so when the opportunity came up to work as a paramedic at night, and I also worked not only in Manhattan, but I also worked in New Jersey for three or four different uh, paramedic services that were just starting up back in the day. So I, I was working for them and at nighttime and going to school during the day, which was which was ideal for me. You know, sometimes it was quiet and you could just relax. Other times it wasn't. But I mean, some of the best sex uh, doctors, residents, nurses, lab technicians, x-ray technicians. It was it was just like a buffet of sweet sex. You know, people always talk about the nurses being the hottest. They're hot. They're, they're, they are. And I mean, they, they do have some great techniques and stuff. But the, I, I think probably the best was this Jewish respiratory therapist. You know, Jewish girls don't give blowjobs. They do. But the question is, did she swallow? Well, and not only that, she absolutely was the best blowjob <laughs> I ever had in my life. Being Jewish, Kevin, I know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you do. huh? But yeah, so I mean, it, it was just, you know, we we were kind of like casual friends, not having sex or anything, but being being around the same hospital all the time at nighttime. You know, you get to see people. And I had my own ready room, you know, like a medical resident would have on the hospital. Each paramedic had their own room where they slept, they showered, and they, you know, they had a toilet and everything in there. And she would come and visit at night after we started becoming intimate. And so we started having sex and she actually lived in the hospital residence, I guess they call it. It was like an apartment complex that was connected to the hospital. And man, we had some wild times over there. And she loved, what was that drink that she loved? Oh my God. Um, I can't remember. There was a drink that I've never had before in my life. You told me about one drink she loved, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the milk. <laughs> And you know it's not it's not hard to imagine that you know you get you do get a lot of girls that do swallow and you know the one thing that that I never had an experience with with until I got to Brazil was anal sex. Mm. Let's talk about Brazil, okay? You said you spent some time there, and I visited myself. I think Brazilian women have to be the sexiest in the world. So tell me about your time down there. And how did you enjoy the beautiful Brazilian babes? Well, absolutely. They, I have no doubt that they're the most beautiful girls in their own way. 
you know, not to take away from any American girls or European girls or anything like that, but in their way, big butts, natural, well, most of the ones that I went for were natural tits, small, big, it didn't matter. And they all seem to have that little triangle, you know, over the tits and, you know, that where the sun didn't hit. Right. And then, you know, you would run into the ones that would do sunbathing topless on the beach when you got down to Rio, but not up, obviously not up in San Paolo. Yes. But I went there originally, it was to shoot underwater in the caverns in Brazil. That was my assignment because I was an underwater photography instructor uh, for Patty. And that was just one of my missions. And, <laughs> and Rio actually wasn't on my schedule. But I had nothing after that until I was to go to Cozumel, which was my first experience in Mexico. Hey, you saw the movie, right? What movie? Blame it on Rio. <laughs> no, I actually never saw that. You've never seen that? You got to see it. It's great. I've never seen that. Yeah. And, and like I said, my first anal experience was, was down there in Rio. And, and uh, I had met this girl, Patty, at, at a phone booth, if you can imagine that. I was trying to make a long distance phone call to, uh, to New York and, uh, I was standing at the phone booth and she just stopped and started staring at me, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, standing there trying to make a phone call in English. So she, you know, she stayed there and she was like, she's like, do you like me? And I was like, you're cute. Yeah. She was like, come on. She said, well, can we go out to dinner? And I was like, yeah, we can go out to dinner. <laughs> and after we went out to dinner, I mean, it wasn't a, you know, we didn't jump into bed. Let's, let's get that straight. It was, and, but it wasn't a long-term thing, but it, we didn't jump into bed. We went on a dinner date. Then we had a cocktail date. We went to a club. And then afterwards, I think the next date we had, we took a bottle of wine down to a, to a private dock somewhere. And we, uh, someplace that she knew we went down there, we did some heavy petting and kissing and stuff. And about a week later is when, bang, it all hit, you know, and, and it was just like, okay, let's have sex. you got to take me there. I mean, in, out on the street and in the car, uh, we, we had oral sex. We had, you know, lots of petting and stuff. But then when we got back to the hotel, it was, it was just everything goes. And she literally pulled my cock out of one hole and stuck it in the other. Ooh. Yeah. And I mean, like we're, we're talking about no lubricant needed. <laughs> yeah. Your own live porn scene. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So it was just like, I, I never became an, an addict of anal sex. You know, it's not like, Hey, if a girl doesn't give out, I'm not going to date her. That's, that's, that's not my thing. You know, I like to eat pussy. That's my favorite thing. I like a lot of kissing. I like a lot of touching. And my oral sex, you know, when a girl gives me a blowjob, I mean, there's only one, you know, one way that I really like it. I like it nice and slow, you know, and I've had a couple of girls that one was, quote, named the blowjob queen in uh, Mexico by an Italian porn star. That's a really nice title. Yeah, but I'll tell you, she, she was not even close to the to being the blowjob queen, you know, not even not even close. I didn't like her blowjobs. Yes, she could deep throat and all that shit, but I just didn't, you know, just wasn't my thing. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, she was, she was fun. We dated for a while and, uh, you know, she was a Mexican porn star wannabe. She did a couple of videos for small time, you know, producers like Latin Exposed. Um, now forget what the name of the other one was, but since been closed, you know, what happens is in Mexico, only the intelligent companies survive because they play to the foreign market, not to the Mexican market. You know, X videos and Pornhub have proven that Mexicans and Latin Americans don't pay for porn. They are the number one purveyor of free porn on those websites. Something that a lot of people don't know, but that's they're the number one purveyors of porn on those websites. They come from Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela. I forget what the order was exactly, but Mexico was the most consumador of you know free porn. Interesting. Then you don't want to try to sell it there. Exactly. So you're not you don't want to put do everything in Spanish. You don't want to do your promotion in Spanish. You want to do your promotion in English. So one of the companies, Sexmex, who was 
and is, continues to be the biggest in Mexico, uh, except for the fact that Bang Brothers has now invaded the Mexican market. Hmm. You know, so they're filming Latin porn stars in Mexico. And some of the male talents from the U.S., in particular, the guys with big black cocks, uh, like Jack Slayer. And there was another one that came in and screwed one of my models. Um, they film content there semi-professionally as content creators. And I mean, you know, so whether they pay or not, or however they do it, they do the exchange with the models. That's none of my business. But, you know, I've had a couple of uh, guys contact me and they were like, hey, you know, have you ever worked with this girl? Yeah, I've worked with her. I've, you know, she's been in the magazine. Hey, I want to, I want to go to Mexico and I want to screw her for my content. I'll share the content with her for her OnlyFans. And, you know, I, the only thing I can do for them is reach out to the model and ask them if they're interested. But SexMix, uh, they reached out to me back in 2015. They wanted me to actually go to work for them and help them break the cycle that they were in. They were in this this cycle and they took all, over an expo. Like we have Exotica. They had what was called Expo Eroticism and something else. But I went one year with them to cover the, the the thing. And basically, it evolved from being a sex expo in the past because somebody else was handling it to being a sex mix propaganda event. Uh, everything there became sex mix and everything there became their performers and so on and so forth. So, I mean, when I was there, I had, uh, what's her name? Uh, Alexis Adams and uh, Jaden something else at the expo and it was very popular you know the mexicans loved it but they weren't going to sell more porn live jasmine was there as a sponsor they brought girls from all over europe and canada down there their top performers to you know to be on stage none of them spoke spanish none of the audience spoke english it'd be a problem yeah little red bunny who was famous at the time i did a little I know video her. of her performing she's she's sweet she's a good girl nice lady and she, you know, her, like many other models, had issues with live Jasmine. I, I forget exactly what the issue was, but they had problems with live Jasmine. They closed their live Jasmine accounts, forced them to reopen under another branded name. Um, I had a girl in Colombia that went through the same thing. She was the number one earner like five years in a row. And uh, all of a sudden they canceled her and told her she had to open under a new under a new name because she was also selling content. Well, the way some companies treat the performers, we know how that is. Now, the women you shoot have often become friends of yours. Now, it's pretty obvious you have a real caring attitude about your subjects. How do you think that helps make your work better? Well, I think in any service job, I think, you know, in this type of service, I think empathy is really important. You need to have empathy with the model. You need to create a, a trust with the model. It's not something that comes instantaneously. So, you know, you do everything you can to try to make the talent relax, especially if it's their first time. Girls that have come back over and over and over again, you know, like uh, Alizie Sanseth, Callie Akatis, uh, Regina Dior, that have been my model since 2007, you know, Crystal Diosa. These these girls, you know, we developed a trust over time. Lizzie, literally everybody in the world thought that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. If she got contracted by somebody else to do a photo shoot, she would make sure I went with her to make sure there was no funny business. You know, it's still a very common practice in Mexico where photographers, producers and all of that, they want to they just want to screw the talent. They're not in it for the money. They have other jobs and they just want to screw the talent. So Kind of like, you know, Lizzie started the trend where, you know, she got called in by one of the newspapers in Mexico that features hot girls, you know, come in and do a shoot with us. You know, we'll feature you on the front page and on in a little article on the inside, you know, like a two page spread. So that's how I guess the whole thing, the whole trust thing came into effect. She's, you know, called me crying from the parking lot of the newspaper that the guy who contracted her to go there. And the guy told her, said, you know, you're not going to get published unless you screw me. You know, all of the girls that I bring here take me to a hotel. They pay the hotel bill and, you know, and they fuck my brains out. And she was like, I don't do this. And I said, no, I know you don't do this. And she was an escort. 
but she was not accustomed to me saying to her, Hey, you're going to have sex with me or, or else you're done. Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't my style. Yeah. But it's because you care. And, and I do care. And I care about all of the girls, even if they didn't come back a second time, right. I cared about their image. You know, I made sure that their image was presentable, that it would, they were shown in the best light for what they were trying to project. And I worked with a lot of amateurs, even back in New York. I worked with models that were just coming out from the modeling agencies. They were, they were wannabes, as the agency called them. And they would send them to me because I had a way of teaching them. You know, my sister was a, was a model back when she was 16, between 16 and 18 years old, before she went on to work for an airline. So my sister, she went through all of the training. She went through modeling school and all that when she was young. And she showed me a lot of stuff that she was learning. Her and her girlfriend used to pose for me. And so we, you know, we, we did a lot of stuff. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff to be able to pass on to the girls that were just starting out. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., it was very uncommon to find an escort that was trying to be a model. And, you know, in Mexico, it was more common to find, you know, escorts that were trying to be models, porn stars that wanted to be mainstream models and do other stuff. So it was it was all an important part of showing them how to pose, how to walk. Uh, Sabrina couldn't even walk in high heels. She had never worn high heels in her life. And uh, she wanted to be a mainstream model. That was her goal. So we did a lot of pajama shoots. We did a lot of stuff like that just for, you know, just for her promotion. And uh, at the time, back when when Katya came for her photos, I was the staff photographer for a modeling agency in Mexico City. So I had the uh, ability to move girls into mainstream modeling, doing simple things like... Uh, demonstration models and going to shows like car shows, expos, the Formula One, things like that, and get paid. You know, even catalog work, lingerie catalog that I worked for paid my girls 12,000 pesos, which is $600 for a day's work. A lot. Yeah. And for an escort that was earning $75 an hour, getting one or two appointments a day, that was a big bump. Big time. So, Kevin, to wrap up here, what would you like people to know about Eroticism Magazine? Well, Eroticism Magazine is, let's call it the, you know, explicit triple X version compared to Erotique Magazine. L'Eratique is more a um, 70s, 80s Playboy style, and it, we're able to attract more models who don't want to, you know, spread their legs and stick their hand or a dildo in their in their pussy. But in, you know, eroticism, we have featured hot wives. Um, even as recently as 2022, we've had hot wives and swingers in the magazine and on the cover, even with penetration and, you know, everything you can imagine. So that's that's what eroticism magazine is. And Right now, it's available mostly only in digital because it's 200 pages. And for people to print it, it would be cost prohibitive, really. And the Erotique magazine is the flashback of the Playboy Times. You know, sexy lingerie, yeah, titties, um, yeah, nude, complete nude, but without showing the intimate parts. And it's, you know, and it's all about posing the girls and, and so on and so forth. This year, since we've ra- launched Erotique, I haven't had the opportunity to shoot any of the girls because of my situation here, health and strategically located in Houston, Texas. However, I am working with a, a performer who now moved back to Texas and she's about three hours away. So we're talking about working together and her sending some people from my Houston area here to, to shoot with me. Um, I went to a, a hip hop studio recording studio today and spoke with the manager of the studio to, to get some girls. And actually I'm lied. The one girl that was shot for a erotique magazine, I did shoot. She was a, she was a Ukrainian girl. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have a connection with the manager of a strip club here in Texas, and uh, he's in Houston, and he uh, 
he was open to doing some kind of a relationship where he could send me girls that had that did content creation or webcamming in addition to stripping. So I photographed her. She looks like she's maybe 19 years old, but she's actually 21. And uh, she's very pretty. And it was perfect for her because she didn't want to, she didn't know if she was going to continue in this. She was talking about going home. She was jailed in Dubai. Oh, God. Yeah, she was jailed in Dubai because her agency took her and a bunch of girls to Dubai to do a shoot. And it, they ended up, I guess, getting naked or semi-naked or indecent. That can be a problem in, in UAE, yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what they say. I mean, I have an Indian girl that's in Dubai as well. And she told me that, you know, it was big news there. Careful. Well, she uses a, uh, what do they call them? She uses a proxy to connect to do her cam sessions. You know, so she kind of hides it, but she does know girls that were caught. You got to be really careful in countries like that. And Thailand is one of them, my friend. Well, hey, Kevin, I wanted to thank you for being our guest today on Adult Side Broker Talk. And I know we have just scratched the surface here, so I hope we'll have a chance to do it again. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to come back again and continue the story. <laughs> thank you, sir. My broker tip today is part 10 of what to do to make your site more valuable for when you decide to sell it later. Last week, we talked about what information to give a potential buyer and what determines the value of a site. We'll continue that today. If a site hasn't been monetized, then it's all about the amount and the quality of the traffic. If a sale is based on traffic, it will be a multiple of what the traffic would sell for on the open market. What are the sources of traffic? Direct traffic, search engine traffic, and review traffic are the most valuable. Tube traffic, the least valuable. Is the traffic reliable and sustainable? What is the traffic history? In a rare case, the valuation will be based upon revenue. The same factors apply to that as of profit, and the valuations will, of course, be lower than those of profits. How old is the website? Is the domain a .com or something else? .com is still king. How many inbound links are there? How much staff does it take to run the site? How many email addresses do you have? In the case of a dating site, this is really important. Another factor can be the reverse engineering cost. How much would it cost to build the site from scratch and drive the same amount of traffic to it? And how much time would be involved? What's the lifetime value of a customer on the site? Next week, how to buy a website. And next week, we'll be speaking with author Oliver Carter. And that's it for this week's Adult Site Broker Talk. I'd once again like to thank my guest, Kevin Stoltz. Talk to you again next week on Adult Site Broker Talk. I'm Bruce Friedman.